0: Thankfully, the world is opening up again. The entire competitive surf world is doing battle in Australia right now. Hero Chargers braved Chopu's run of swell last week. And much more quietly, lifelong intermediates like you and I are finally getting away from home and getting shacked at much less populated atolls around the world. And waterwaystravel.com is the gateway from G-Land to J-Bay, from Tavarua to Barren Island, to Chicama to Central America. Waterways is the premier surf travel agency and they have decades long relationships with boatmen, chefs, guides, hotel staff. And it all ensures that every human being involved in your trip is invested in putting you in the best surf and then plush accommodations to recover for the next day of surf. So Waterways Travel isn't the new leaders in surf travel. They are the leaders in surf travel for the pros, the magazines, and the brands that you loved from the 90s and the 2000s all the way through until now. They've been doing it for decades. They are the best. So travel intelligently. Nobody has time to waste on getting skunked these days, and there's no need to. WaterwaysTravel.com is your gateway to scoring. So go out and explore, enjoy, waterwaystravel.com. And of course, you'll need boards, board bags, leashes for your next trip, and realwatersports.com has everything that you need. We actually mainly just kind of talk about their surfboards here, but they're actually a preeminent foiling retailer and kiting retailer too. Uh, If you're into those things, I'm sure that you already know that. But as for surfboards, they just received 8 Hundred new surfboards into inventory. A bunch of Pizel shortboards and paddle guns, a huge range of lost shortboards, retro trippers, driver 2.0s, 96 round nose fish, a bunch of Grom boards, like in that 410 to kind of 5.5 range. So something for everyone. They got a bunch of Maurice Coles in recently. Uh, anyways, you know the drill. They offer flat rate, low shipping around the world epic customer service so no matter where you are in the world call real water sports and they will get you dialed into the right equipment realwatersports.com thank you and enjoy all the tired horses in the sun i'm supposed to get in and ride right and done mm-hmm. all the tired horses in the sun Am i am supposed to get in it right done? Mm-hmm. Well, here we go. It's really hard to preface this episode, to kind of put it concisely into uh, an introduction. There's no way to sum it up. Uh, it's a special one is the easiest way to say it. Artist Drew Brophy is our guest. He really catapulted onto the surf scene in the maybe 1996, kind of the late 90s, mid to late 90s, when he began adorning Matt Biolis's Lost surfboards with his artwork. Corey Lopez and Chris Ward were getting cover shots, writing boards painted by Drew, and Drew's style almost became the house style for Lost. It permeated their wildly successful video series uh, and their clothing line and the style and the tone was actually bigger than the brand that was curating it. It really kind of became the style of a movement. And as a result, the demand for Drew's work grew. He traveled the world painting surfboards. Through his travels, his interests grew, and so his work evolved, became much more complex, and he transitioned his medium from surfboards into magazine covers, television shows, books, murals and commissions for corporations and in this past decade into the fine art realm he has a gallery in san Clemente, and you can find everything on drewbrophyart.com and then very unexpectedly and suddenly in november of 2021 drew contracted covid and he became seriously incapacitated he spent nearly a month in a coma four weeks on a ventilator He lost over 100 pounds. He was in the ICU for months. He miraculously defied all of his doctor's expectations simply by surviving the ordeal. But through it, he was pushed to the brink of existence as we know it, and the experience changed him profoundly. It's actually too early to fully process the experience or to understand how profoundly it has altered his perspective on life and the beyond but he was willing to discuss it with me. And I saw this as a very rare opportunity to listen and to try to understand. So without further ado, my name is David Scales and this is my conversation with the great Drew Brophy. Enjoy.
2: Yeah, I think a lot of people are taking for granted the little things in life that make life worth living. And um, something as simple as a glass of water and how good it tastes. Um, I didn't eat or drink anything for four months. Really? So uh, that first drink of water was like heaven. That's but, incredible. Um, you know, but starting with your family, you know, definitely your friends, um, surfing nature sunlight you know so yeah you start to realize that you know you're fine you have you usually have everything you actually need and um if you just learn to appreciate it and i think a lot of people are forgetting you know so
0: we do forget and then even when we get the reminder it's only a matter of time until you fall back into that other perspective the forgetfulness what do you what do you reckon is a good way to maintain that perspective
2: i'm um, just trying to slow things down um you know the world's gotten so fast and you know i'm old enough to you know remember where it wasn't like that and you know where you had time to take a nap let's say yeah um, you know something like surfing and then taking a nap on the beach was awesome when I was younger. And I think that's the, the best, you know, some of the best advice is just really, you know, try to slow things down as much as possible and be present during those moments. Because even though, you know, we can handle a lot and do a lot of stuff, but if you're focused on the the future and not in the present, then you're really not getting a lot out of it. Right. So You know, surfing is one of these things where it forces you to be present. And it's amazing that we can surf as well as we do. Um, And I I imagine a lot of sports are like that, but surfing is more dynamic than most sports, you know, because it's the wave is moving. Right. You you have to be at one with it or, you know, you get wiped out. So, you know, the presence of mind uh, to appreciate things. And, you know, that goes along with, you know, telling your your spouse or your friends or your kids or, you know, whoever that that you love them and you appreciate them, Um, make that connection with people. Um, You know, my situation in the hospital, like, you know, it it doesn't get as bad as where I was. And I was so dependent upon my family, the doctors, the nurses, um, my extended family that couldn't be there, and my friends and fans that were all praying for me. Um, there's some type of magic with that that lifetime connection with people that you get, you know, for me, you know, I, I'm lucky I have this job that, you, know, my art goes out in the world and it makes people happy. and you know it, it kind of ties their mind to this happy moment, And um, it all came back to me. And I got to think that thousands of people wishing me well across the world helped me survive. Fascinating. Um, As well as the fitness of surfing. Right. You know, you look at people that aren't real uh, mindful of what they eat and and how their body
0: is. um, They would not have survived. Um, Well, I I'm going to ask you a little bit more about willpower and other people's, um, the effect that that prayer and stuff has. But before I do, can you kind of start from the beginning about how you contracted COVID? What was your, um, how were you viewing COVID prior to contracting it? And then how severe was your case?
2: Um, I mean, COVID for me, I've definitely... Uh, was worried about it. I understood how gnarly it was. I did not feel that I was a good uh, candidate because I was very strong and, um, you know, my body, you know, I take care of myself. I hardly ever get sick. Um, But, you know, we were driving across country when I caught it. So we were trying to avoid people on airplanes. I didn't think being on an airplane was a good idea. So we chose to drive. And, you know, I was seeing family, you know, and um, that was about it. But I didn't catch it uh, being around family. I caught it driving across country at like a random gas station or something. Wow. I mean, I must have walked through a cloud of somebody coughing because I was you know, I'm actually an introvert. Um, you know, I don't like being around a lot of people. And, um, you know, I do it for, you know, when I got to go to events and things, but normally I like kind of doing everything by myself. And so it was just my wife and I, and, you know, we have no idea. It was somewhere between Tennessee and Colorado. And I was driving eight to 10 hours a day. And uh, prior to that, I'll back up a little bit. You know, the COVID in itself destroyed our business. Oh, really? And so we, we lost all our contracts when COVID hit and, you know, we almost had to shut our gallery down and I had to double time it to save my business and my, you know, livelihood, um, which was terrifying. I think a lot of people forget that, you know, that for, you know, independent people. I mean, it was, it was terrible. Yeah. And so I really had to work, you know, tremendously to save everything, which I did. Um, but I was working, you know, so much that I ground myself down to a nub. So even though I was in good health, it was the worst health that I'd been in my life. Um, and, uh, then driving 10 hours a day for you know weeks was uh, not very good for me either. So I was not sleeping real well. And so when I did contracted, I was at my weakest, unfortunately. Gotcha. And on top of that, I was in the middle of the country. And so not realizing that I had COVID, um, I continued to drive uh, for three days. And so by the time I got home, I was really sick. And um, I thought that I was just run down, that all I needed was a good night's sleep, and I'd wake up and I'd feel better. And, I, um, of course, that didn't happen. I, w- I went to sleep, and uh, I didn't get up. And a lot of people don't realize my wife was sick, too. And, you know, we don't have any family here in California. And so we were both too sick to help ourselves. So a couple days into it, I think it was actually three days into it. Um, my wife, uh, was on the phone with my sister and she said, you guys got to go to the hospital or something. And so my wife got enough energy together to, uh, to us to go to urgent care to get tested first to see if we had COVID. And of course it came back positive. And um, my blood, or not my blood, but my oxygen uh, test said I was only at 70%. Uh, and the lady said, I don't know how you walked in here. Um, wow. you gotta go right to the emergency room. So that's basically how it went down. Gotcha. And, you know, my ignorance of never really being sick, ever. Um, I've never been hospitalized. Um, maybe thinking I was a lot stronger than I was, um, you know, overconfident. Those types of things definitely played into it. But there again, you know, i um, I'd never been sick before, so I didn't know that it could be that bad. Um, When I got to the emergency room, they took me right in and, um, did some tests and then took me right to ICU. So I was really bad off. Um, and was Maria recovering at that point? Yeah. Maria didn't get it as bad, but you know, there again, you know, I'd been working myself to a bone and then also driving, you know, for a long period of time. Right. Um, And so I was just toast. Right. And, um, but yeah, so she, she recovered pretty quick. And, um, unfortunately for me, um, I continued to get worse. I was fighting it in the hospital and I was determined to beat it. And what I was doing was the doctor said I needed to, you know, breathe. I was on oxygen. And so I was doing these breathing exercises really heavy, like trying to inflate my lungs. And your lungs get really hard when you have COVID pneumonia. And, um, you know, I was just a bulldog breathing. And I actually breathed really uh, too much, inflated my lungs too much. And I popped two holes in my right lung. Oh, my gosh. So I had a total lung collapse on the right side. And that's when I got into trouble.
0: Um, Did they catch that immediately?
2: Yeah, they start. They caught it, and then basically from that point, the doctor came in and said, "Okay, there's three three ways this is going to go down." He said, "You're gonna you could choose to continue to fight." He said, "But you're gonna die. 100 percent, you're gonna die." He said, or number two scenario is maybe you don't die right away, but you're fighting so hard, you're going to have a heart attack and you're going to die. He said, or we put you, um, we intubate you, give your lungs a rest. He said, but I'm sorry to say that you're probably going to die there too. You're too far gone. You probably have less than a 20% chance of surviving. And me, I was like, No way, man, I I was like, I got this. You know, my mindset was different. Um, I mean, it's scary to have a doctor tell you these things, but you know, my mindset was totally different. Um, And my wife and my sister were in a window looking at me, you know, when this all went down with the doctor. And so I said, okay, I'll, I'll go under. But number one, I was unafraid. I think, you know, if you let fear creep in, um, you're done. And I was telling my wife, you know, no problem. I got this, you know. And, you know, that's not something you choose to do, to, to be afraid or not afraid. Yeah. It's essentially a way that you, you live. Um, so, you know, telling people out there, you know, how do you live your life? What's your normal temperament? Are you the type of person that's afraid of everything or you're a person that, you know, feels that you can deal with almost anything? So for those of you that, you know, feel you're afraid of everything, you might want to work on that because when stuff happens and things get real, you don't want to be the person that curls up in a ball and cries. You gotta rise to the occasion, um, and that can't really be taught. It's something you gotta work on on your own.
0: So, I think having purpose in life, you know, like when you're looking at your wife and your sister, that certainly gives you a reason to yeah. fight.
2: Yeah, I mean, I always think of like single people that really don't have a kid. If they if they don't have kids or a wife, I could see how you could definitely let go. Um, but for me, you know, my, my wife and son need me and not to mention that, you know, there's a lot of stuff I want to do still. Um, so definitely having that, uh, somebody that needs you and depends on you is a big motivator. Um, so yeah, it's real important. So you get intubated. Yeah. Um, and being intubated, you know, they, they put nitrous oxide on me right away and knocked me out. Um, so it's quick. I mean, we made the decision. The next thing you know, I'm waving goodbye, and that was it. Um, I don't, you know, once you're intubated, uh, you put on a ventilator, and that gives you your body a chance to relax. But the problem is they put you on these heavy drugs, uh, Fentanyl, Versed, um, really bad stuff. And, you know, I had no idea what was in store for me uh, while I was under. But they're pickling me with all these drugs. And that's to induce a coma. while I was in the coma, uh, every day that goes by is uh, causing atrophy in your body. Okay. Everything's uh, wilting away. Um, your body starts to feed on itself, and you know during that time period, um, you know it, it was I was intubated for 28 days. Wow. Which unheard of. And they said, you know, about halfway through, they told my wife, I wasn't coming back. Wow. Um, And so she was brokenhearted, but she took it the other way. And that's when she really started to fight. And she was putting the messages out there that, you know, people need to pray. And, and she was, had the mindset that I was coming back. And that, you know, she just wanted more people uh, to know that I was coming back and that I was still alive. I wasn't dead, um, even though the doctors were kind of giving up. Meanwhile, while I'm in the, the coma, my soul was free. I was like floating in the other side, I had a near-death experience that... Uh, we might say for another time, it was extraordinary. Have you talked about that yet? Or do you just Uh, to individuals, not really to publicly, but I had a magical experience that, um, you know, I can accept it could have been a dream or something, but I don't remember any of the dreams. I remember this. And Mm -hmm. it was, you know, amazing. And it was the light. It was, um, all I can say is there's nothing to fear. There never was, and um, you know, enjoy being here as much as you can. There's, you're, uh, you know, there's there's plenty more to come. So don't mm-hmm. don't be in a hurry to get there. It'll be there mm-hmm. when, you're, when you're ready. Um, so I was not struggling at all, but when they did tell me I had to go back. I do remember the pressure um, of being forced back into my body, and um, this was 28 days in. All the while, at this point, since they thought I was going to die, my uh, they let my wife and sister in, and um, they had been like rubbing my feet and um, reading to me, talking to me. Um, the whole time when I was out, um, I think after two weeks in, they let my wife in and my wife was, uh, and she, they actually had an iPad prior to that, where my wife would talk to me and stuff via the iPad. I really felt bad for her because she was, you know, a hundred percent in, and, you know, I was unresponsive, but on that 28th day, When I got back in, I woke up through the drugs and the doctors didn't know what to think. They'd said they'd never seen somebody fight through the drugs to awaken. And, uh, you know, I I wasn't fully awake, but I was fighting it and I was moving, like trying to move at least. And my wife said I squeezed her hand. And, um, uh, I was back. Uh, I don't remember waking up. I don't remember the moment, but I do remember the moment I, uh, I came through and I realized I was awake again, but it, it was a couple days before I like, got my sorts, sorted myself out. And I didn't really understand that I was paralyzed. Um, I'd lost a hundred pounds in the ordeal. Wow. Yeah, I was about two, two, 205, 210, and I went down to 105. Wow. That's so tiny. So I was a skeleton. Yeah. I like I was right out of the Nazi death camps. Right. Um, though I couldn't see myself. Um, I didn't understand I was paralyzed. I thought I was actually um, part of the floor. Believe it or not, I. I was trying to move and I was like, oh, like, how come I can't move? And there was the drugs, you know, that maybe not be able to think straight. And then I couldn't understand what the nurses were saying. And I couldn't understand why I couldn't talk. And, you know, nothing made sense. And that went on for a long time, not understanding what was wrong. And not being able to communicate, um, It was torture watching them, you know, putting needles and doing things to me, had all kinds of tubes in me, Um, felt like one of the Borg or something out of Star Trek, just like things coming out of me everywhere. Yeah. And then, you know, my right hand was like the only thing that kind of worked. And I was, they kept trying to put a pen in my hand and I couldn't hold it. And then slowly I began to be able to hold it. And then I'd try to write, but I could just go across the paper. Couldn't do anything. And then eventually I could write something. I don't know how long that took, like a month or something. Oh, my gosh. But um, first thing I wrote was, why am I paralyzed? I had no, like, you know, I, I was hell bent on surviving, but nobody told me about the paralysis and the atrophy and all that. So it just, I didn't, it didn't compute. and um, You know, that was a harsh pill to swallow. Um, and I had some, you know, hero nurses um, in there that were trying to get me to sit up and do things um, cause it's real important to get your body moving, but you know, with all the shortages and stuff, there just wasn't enough people. So the, you know, the learned a lot about the medical system. Uh, it's really great people in there, but it's definitely not perfect. Um, I believe everybody did the best they could for me, but a lot of things went uh, wrong that were at my expense wow Um, and it's i don't blame anybody uh it's just there's just so much going on that things fall through the cracks um it's really hard to you know break them out of their their system that they have yeah and they might not be making the best decisions for some covid patients Um, right you know which is unfortunate We had to fight for everything from vitamin C drips to, you know, getting nourishment. Uh, I wasn't being fed for a long time. Um, So, you know, you can't get better if you're not getting nutrients. Um, You know, just, I always felt like I was dehydrated. Um, You know, they weren't giving me enough water and that water would go through a G-tube into my stomach. so the things like that. But.
0: Yeah, having an advocate like your wife is hugely helpful with that. I'm sure.
2: Yeah, um, an advocate is everything. Yeah, and even the doctor said that usually the people that survive, not just COVID, but anything that's you know really serious, if you don't have somebody in there fighting for you, um, mistakes are made, things go wrong. You know, yeah. it's just in your morales of um, down. Right. And it's no so fun to be in the hospital. Yeah. yeah. It, it's awful. And um, the beeping, you know, everything's beeping. You can't sleep. You know, I'm constantly getting blood drawn. You know, I was getting needles, you know, every couple hours. Um, just the drugs. I mean, I don't do any drugs. I don't smoke. I, you know, the amount of drugs that they were giving me were just, it was just insane. Mm. um, I think my body's really sensitive to the drugs. Yeah. uh, That's all they want to do is give me more drugs. And I'm like, man, I I don't want all these drugs. Um, And you can't make good decisions when you're on drugs. Yeah. So that, that was upsetting me. But, you know, basically, it took me A long time before I was, I guess it was somewhere in time in February, where I was not in danger of dying. Okay. So, I was still in ICU in mid-February. And, um, you know, I didn't realize it, but I was still really close to, like, having something go wrong. And, um, I've come to find out now that, you know, other COVID patients have a lot of, um, other things that go wrong due to their abuse of their bodies. Usually, but, you know, they could be, you know, other organ failures or a big one's blood clots. So, you know, some people have had their limbs cut off and things like that due to blood clots. Um, a lot of strokes. Um, Okay. And I saw it all. So I had people dying all around me, which was awful. Um, from the moment I woke up, there was people dying all around me in the COVID unit. Um, some had family members around, some did it. Uh, that was pretty scary. Um, as they dropped off, you know, because you're just like, Oh wow, it's getting real. And all yeah. the alarms are going off, you know, code blue and, um, You know, so that happens enough that you you feel like you're in a war zone and uh, you can't get out. Just the alarms and the intensity of you know everybody working and running around and you're just laying there like just powerless um, is pretty damaging. And they call it ICU um, psychosis. That you know you're just all of a sudden you just can't take anymore but you can't get out so mm-hmm. you know it's maddening so uh,
0: yeah let me ask you when you were in the coma you said that your wife was talking to you through the iPad and at a certain point she was able to rub your feet were you conscious of any of that or did you process any of that in the coma
2: i didn't i didn't know it at all Gotcha. Um, Yeah, I was gone. I don't think I was there. I think I was out in the ether. Do you You think it has an effect? Yeah, I definitely do. Yeah. I mean, I think that it's the thoughts, you know, I don't think it's so much physical. I think it's the thoughts. I mean, at times, I mean, the, you know, your mental strength is really tested. Um, you know, you can't communicate, you can't move. Um, and you're like, you know, where they say there's no atheists in foxholes. It's kind of that right. same thing. I mean, you're praying, please, God, help me. Yeah. And you're thanking your friends and family. You're thanking the nurses and the doctors. And you're just like, you know, trying to build the strength to go on. Really, what you're doing? Yeah. And I could say that I could feel the hopes and prayers of all the people. And um, you know, I needed it. I needed
0: it every day. Um, it, was, it was so dark. Say, say more about that. Like, in what way do you feel it? And was it because your wife had communicated it to you at some point that there was a large community rallying for you or was it just something that you sense?
2: Um, it was just something that like a, you know, kind of like charging your iPhone. It was just like a, an energy that you tap into and it, it partially goes back to the near death experience of being in the light. And realizing everybody's connected. And they tap into you and give you their their energy. They were giving it to me. And I, you know, just. In those dark moments where it was really hard. I just repeated myself, I am the light. I can't be extinguished. I'm the light. And, you know, my wife did communicate to me that lots of people were praying. And um, my wife and um, the girl that works for me, Christine, uh, my sister, they and my son, they decorated my room with pictures of my life, of my family. You know, okay. There's pictures of me surfing, big waves, pictures of me paddling down the Colorado, um, pictures of me hanging out with my son and my wife and my extended family. And I could see those pictures which reminded me who I was, not mm-hmm. where I was like in this predicament. So all those things have uh, become very important. And, uh, no, but I could feel the, the hopes and prayers and I tapped into them as often as I possibly could,
0: because I mean, it was crazy, man. It's, um, what's crazy to me is that I've heard doctors talk about willpower being so important and being a deciding factor for, like cancer patients, whether they survive or not. And so it's surprising that the doctor would have almost tried to erode your willpower at the beginning by saying, we have these three options, all three of those you're going to die. Like, why would he even present it that way? I mean, other than it's just the stark reality, you know?
2: Yeah. I think uh, he was just, preparing me for what I was up against. Um, he's not sugarcoating it. He's just like, this is the way it is. Um, and most of the doctors, not just him during this whole time period were pretty frank with me about everything. Um, so the willpower side of it comes into play exactly right. I mean, you know, I basically been told I couldn't do anything my whole life. Why would this be any different? Mm. You know, so I just looked at him like, well, you know, maybe that's most people, but I'm, you know, I'm getting through this. Yeah. I, I never wavered in that. Um, Good. I'm still, you know, not normal yet. And I know I'll, I'll make a hundred percent recovery. Um. Um, I still need oxygen at night. Um, I can't uh, do some things yet. can't surf. Um, I'm still super weak. I got to build back my body. Um, I got kidney stones from bone loss uh, due to the paralysis. You know, so I, I got some hurdles still, but, you know, I, I have no doubt I'm going to make a 100% recovery. Not only that, I'm going to be better shaped because, you know, I'm going to be able to you know, maybe stay at that one seventy five ideal weight that I had um, mm. when I was like twenty five. So you know, I'm going to try to get there and stay there. Um,
0: did you ever did you ever see that doctor again who gave that initial prognosis? Yeah. And I mean, was he he had to be uh, surprised and amazed at your recovery? They were calling me the miracle man. Were they? Yeah.
2: They're doing a case study on me now. But they found out that you know nobody my age went through as much as I did survived. So they're trying to figure out what it was that um, that made me survive, and they like to think it's something they did. Right. But I think it was all the things that we did. Maria and myself. Just that sheer will to live. Mm. And uh, and that's why I tell people to work on that being present and that don't give in to fear and that type of thing. Don't live your life in fear. There's nothing to fear. You know, tackle everything with the, the idea that I'm going to figure this out. Um, I, I had to accept the fact. If God decided to take me, so be it. There's nothing I can do about that. But yeah, I want to stay. You know, I, want, I got stuff I want to do. You know, Let me ask
0: you, without um, going into the near-death experience, uh, clearly that's changed your perspective on life and your outlook. Now, having that altered perspective, what would you have done differently in the first half of your life? Um,
2: I do I've, I've led a pretty dangerous life. So, uh, I don't know if I'd do anything differently. I would possibly gone further out on a limb. Really? I would have... I would have pushed the envelope that much more. I would have said yes to more things. I would have, you know, started earlier. Hmm. Like, you know, I kind of had that mindset, you know, even before. But uh, now that I look at, it, I just be like, you know, we're put here to have experiences, and we're technically creation machines. We're creating this world that we live in. And I think one of one of the things I would be is uh, nicer to people. I mean, I developed being nice to people, but I would say in my younger years, I was so, uh, you know, I, how could I put it? You know, I grew up in the South where you, where you uh, are taught, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. And if you do a good job, you get paid. If you say you're going to do something, you do it. But once I got out in the world, I found out that not everybody's playing by those rules. And um, I got taken advantage of. And it made me angry that people would do that. And so you're kind of put in the position of being a sucker or an asshole. Well, I wasn't a sucker. And I would fight back. And so, you know, I would like to think I'm a really nice guy. I've done a lot of good in this world. But I got a short fuse if it gets lit. And um, I don't like that about myself. So I probably want to change that. Because in the end, we're all connected. And you need to help the people that are having the worst day of their life or, or having a weak moment. Yeah. That's why you need to be wise or wiser than other people so that you can help them.
0: Yeah.
2: Or you can understand where they're at and have compassion for them. So I, I think that's a better answer. Like just, you know, love and compassion for your fellow man that maybe they're not where you're at. Maybe you can help them Or maybe you can just understand that they're not where you're at. Maybe they don't have to be fixed. You don't have to fix everything. It's just being okay. It's like seeing somebody run a stop sign instead of calling them a jerk. Say, well, you know, who knows? Maybe they're having some crazy day that they're in a hurry and they just, they're not thinking right. And instead, maybe just say a little prayer for them. Like, hey man, I hope, you know, this settles down for you.
0: Sound. I mean, you talked about there's nothing to fear. And all those things that you just mentioned, I think are the result of fear. Like if you fear, or if somebody is taking advantage of you, it's a fear of, you know, what they're taking from you. Or if you didn't go out on a limb for far enough when you were young, it's because you're afraid of the failure or afraid of the consequence or whatever. So it all kind of comes back to the initial thing that you said. Yeah. which is there's nothing to fear being kind to people. It's, you know, there's nothing to fear there.
2: Yeah.
0: Um, can I ask you're referencing God and a certain spirituality. Are you religious or were you religious before and how did this near death experience alter your perspective on religion?
2: Um. I'm not religious. Uh, I did grow up Catholic, so I was introduced to religion at a young age. Um, I am very curious about uh, like anthropology and and you know ancient civilizations, um, you know ancient wisdom, those types of things. So in those things. Uh, there's a lot of messages, and uh, I think all the religions are basically saying the same thing. Uh, they just package it a little different. Um, they seem to be coming from something very ancient that uh, they're all spinning off of some knowledge from, you know, way, way, way back. So, in that idea, it probably has something to do with what i saw which is you know the light and that everybody's part of that light and uh you know when you think of you know when they talk about jesus or something i am the light of the world i'm the son of god you know think of the word sun in itself the light so you know all these things are very very similar um you know and that's surfers and stuff, you know, we become amateur meteorologists. And uh, for me, you know, wanting to know why the waves are good and studying the weather on a global, you know, concept, you know, there's only so far you can go and then you start looking at the sun. And so I'm really interested in the sun as well. And what's really interesting about a lot of the, you know, ancient myths and things are really about the cosmos. Um, you know, the sun, the solar system, the galaxy. And so given that, that starts to come into play too. So the, the religion thing is a lot more dynamic than what people think um, the dogmas and stuff are. So I guess that's a, a long answer. I, I guess I am religious on some, not religious, but interested in um, where the stories come from. Yeah. Yeah. So and with what I saw, it seems right on
0: target. Um, okay. So it affirmed a lot of your beliefs that you already held.
2: Yeah, just like you know, one of the things of of studying the solar system, and you know, I go to these conferences that are based off of uh you know the sun and the solar system, and the earth and You know, there'll be people from a lot of the aerospace companies and NASA and, you know, meteorologists, climatologists, all these people. And, you know, one of the things is, you know, we're so part of the earth or our human body that, yeah I mean, we're literally part of it. Um, And when I had this out-of-body experience, I really saw that this body's part of it, but you... Are not this body. And um, that was abundantly clear to me in this uh, experience that I had. Yeah. And um, you know, when you talk about space travel and stuff, you know, I'm not so sure we're gonna be able to go to Mars because our bodies are built for the earth. Right. All of that electromagnetic system that's here. So, you know, I, I just think about that. And, you know, maybe we won't work
0: once we get outside that electromagnetic field. I just want to use this to segue into your art because it seems like a lot of these themes you've been interested in for decades. Um, I know your art is kind of defined. I think it's as quantum art. Yeah. Can you, can you explain what that means and your, how this all ties together?
2: Well, you know, everything comes from what I'm working on. And, you know, a number of years ago, maybe 10 years ago, I got hired to, do a mural for a company that was structuring water. And so with any project that I get hired to do, whether it's a surf company or it's Google or, you know, 3M, IBM, I work for a lot of companies. And um, I have to research what, what we're doing and what the message is, what the, um, it has to be right, you know? So this company hires me and I didn't know anything about structured water. I was like, well, what is I
0: it? don't know what that even is. Yeah.
2: Right. So, um, so I had to learn. So I dive in, I read all the material, I watch videos, and come to find out that, you know, water is not just water. It's not, it's not uh, as simple as just water. And what it does is it seems to uh, rain down from clouds. It'll land on the earth and as it rolls down through the streams and rivers, it gets um, introduced to all the different earth minerals. And those earth minerals give off an electromagnetic frequency. And that frequency gets embedded in the structure, the lattice structure of the water. So it's almost like the water is recording the necessary minerals that the human body needs to build itself. And these shapes are beautiful. They come out as like the platonic solids. And so these crazy three-dimensional geometries are within the lattice structure of all the minerals, but the water seems once it hits that electromagnetic field of the mineral, it'll mimic it within its lattice structure. Almost like us, like a hard drive that your body can then you drink that water. It can read that and build. It says, all right, the body knows how to build itself. It just needs the tools. And that's what the water's kind of doing. And they were using this for big agriculture to help plants grow better, be resistant to uh, pests without fertilizers or anything like that. They were just taking the water and, you know, instead of, Put nitrogen and stuff on them. The water was, you know, had nitrogen embedded in its latt- lattice structure and stuff like this. And it was crazy. So from there, I, I met a theoretical physicist, um, Nassim Harriman, and he was saying, you got to come to my talk. And I went to his talk and his was all about, um, you know, measuring the mass of a proton and all this kind of stuff. So I got interested in physics. And from there, the only way I could understand it was to paint it and draw it. And that's where all these uh, geometric paintings are coming from. And it's basically what it is, is an articulation of how everything works. And, um, you know, lots of different scientists and artists have used this in the past as an articulation of things. And I'll give you an example of why it works in art. Um, in art or your, your body, let's say your eyes, for instance, and all your senses are electromagnetic frequency detectors. And what that means is it's it's trained to look for perfection. Um, something smells good to you because your body wants it. Something tastes good because your body needs it. Something looks good because your body wants it. Um, now with, with your eyes, uh, you have these proportions that look good to you automatically because it's the right proportions laid out in a certain way. You know, we call it composition, but it's more important that, you know, it's flow and design and all these things. And then you add color into there You know, you like certain things. So you might like a piece, you don't know why you like it, you just like it. But the artist, an artist that understands these principles understands why you like it. And it doesn't even have to be that well done. Mm. So a master painter could paint a painting without these principles and you don't like it. And then a kid can come up and do this crude thing with these principles and you like it. Yeah. It's kind of like music, too. We can all yeah. recognize a sour note. You don't like it. It doesn't fit. It sounds bad. So if you get the notes right, it's almost like you can put them in any order. Right. Um, but if you get the mo- note wrong, it sticks out like a sore thumb. I had
0: I'd, I'd seen a study uh, like five years ago. Um, I think it was a college student who was doing a thesis on it, but it was like, Adele, the singer Adele, her music resonates on an emotional level with all of humanity, regardless of what language they speak. And they were able to isolate these kind of tonal frequencies that she's hitting with her voice that just hits a part of your emotionality or maybe your heart or whatever and makes you cry, essentially, you know, and feel certain things.
2: Yeah. And I can totally see that happening. Um, so that's kind of what the, that journey into, you know, what they call sacred geometry and the understanding of what's important to this, um, you know, I was very interested and what I found out also is I was, no, there's Maria. Hi Maria, nice to see you. Hello. Um, what I found out is I was already doing it. So you know, as an artist, I was innately doing some of these proportions already. And I got to think that's why people like my art is because, yeah, gotcha. um, you know, the subject matter is, could have been anything. It's just the fact that I did have these proportions and flow, um, and color schemes, uh, right. And, uh, now i'm I'm really incorporating both. I like showing the the mechanics of the geometry into a painting so that people can understand this information yeah. because they don't really teach it um, they used to um, it used to be at the basis of all the the sciences and uh, I mean
0: that's what's fascinating about it is that you think of engineering as being over here and Painting is being over here, but it's fascinating to understand painting kind of from an engineering perspective.
2: Well, it's mathematics too. So what's crazy is you I, I could imagine a school system where you start out the day with this study of geometry and sacred geometry, and then that same study gets applied to all your other, other curriculum. It should. So when you you go into math, they put that same concept into math, geometry, music, art, you know, science, football, football, everything. All of it. Yeah. And, you know, all of a sudden, the guy that's not good at art, that's good at math, can understand art and vice versa. Right. And, you know, I never thought I was good at math until I started understanding these principles
0: and now it's just like, you know, I got it. Is, um, are there other artists who are practicing the same thing that you're. Yeah.
2: There's lots of people. Okay. Um, Funny enough. There's a lot of people that, uh, do psychedelics that, that get into this. Yeah. Because evidently, um, when you're on psychedelics, you, you, you enter this world where everything gets super visual in these, those proportions are everywhere and you just start to see everything in a whole different light. And for me, you know, I've, I've known my whole life that I had some extra perception and abilities. Um, and the way I can describe them is I see things, I hear things and smell things Uh that most people don't Interesting. I thought everybody was like me. And so when I was a kid, I didn't understand why people didn't notice the things I saw or hear the things I heard. And um, it wasn't until I was an adult that I, I Oh my gosh, they're not, they don't see it. It's not like I, I don't think it is that I hear better. Maybe I do a little bit, but it's more like I'm more present. So I pick out everything and I'd make a conscious note of it. And when I was a kid, I grew up like in the in South Carolina in these forests and estuaries and open spaces. And I used to go in the woods a lot and there was a lot of creatures out there, and everything from deer to bear to you know foxes and skunks and alligators and you know countless types of birds, um, snakes, you name it but I could have told you what every sound in that forest was. Mm. Whether it was a snake, whether it was a friendly snake or not, whether it was a gator, whether it was a hawk, whether it was a deer. And I could feel when the wind changed. I could smell things and knew what they were. You know, it is just wild. And I could huh. see, one of the big things that I have is like, And this is like a a perception of, I feel something, then I see it. So I'll be driving, you know, 80 miles an hour down a dirt road, and I'll turn my head and see a snake in the grass. Lock eyes with it for a microsecond. I felt it first, and then I looked. It made me think that, you know, you think of something like a rabbit and a hawk. Now a rabbit has like big ears so that it can hear the hawk. And the hawk developed really good eyes so it could find the hair. Now you wonder, in order to develop those things, did the, you know, did the rabbit feel the hawk first and decided to grow bigger ears? And did the hawk feel the rabbit down there in the thick of the brush and decide to sharpen its eyes? I mean, it's kind of like that. Did that develop over time out of need? Like the hawk needed better eyes so it could find the, so it developed into this. And it's kind of like that. Like I feel things first.
0: But what do, you, what do you attribute it to your sensitivity to those things in your childhood?
2: Um, just being present in the woods. You have to be ultra, ultra present or you're going to get eaten by a gator or bear or something.
0: Plenty of other kids, plenty of other kids had that same experience growing up, but didn't develop those. Was anything in your upbringing or your parents or your household? um, They kind of left me alone. They kind of like, I was
2: the last of five kids, so they weren't worried about me. But it's kind of like the eerie feeling. I remember I was surfing at leftovers in Hawaii one time. I was having a great day. The waves were good. So left peeling down that reef and um, I just caught a great wave and I kicked out at the end of it. And all of a sudden I just got shivers up my spine and I knew I needed to get up on the reef, which I did. I got up on the reef and I got up there and I didn't even know why. And I looked, stand on the reef and I'm like, what the hell did I do this for? And then I walked back up the reef and plopped back out in the deep end and told my friend, I was like, God, the weirdest thing just happened to me. I didn't think about it until later that night. I would, told somebody else, and they said, yeah, well, that's where, right in that little deep spot at the end of the wave is where the, this boogie boarder got bit by a tiger shark, got killed well, a couple of years before. Oh. And I was just like, that's what it was. There must have been a tiger shark right there. And so, or the, inter-
0: or the energy from what had happened previously, even.
2: Yeah, I think it was probably the shark. I think the shark was probably in that area and was probably you know looking for something to bite. And I felt it. And I think everybody has these abilities they just they don't listen to them. Yeah. They they're just so non-present that they don't listen to them. Yeah. I can tell you also like I can be walking down a street And, you know, sometimes, like, homeless people will be hiding somewhere. I can feel them before I see them. Yeah. And it's a weird, it's a real terrible feeling. It's like a hopelessness. And um, it's an icky feeling, like, ooh. Or I'll be in a crowd of people, and one of the reasons I don't like crowds is it's over sensory for me. Like, I can't go to a big football game. I don't really like concerts and things like that. Um it's yeah. just too much to process. And um I'll enter a room and I'll feel somebody icky. And then I, I try to find them. But <laughs> like I'm just sitting there, I'm like, oh my gosh, there's somebody in here. It's just it's just making my skin crawl. Yeah. And um, you know, I can't relax until I know who it is, so I can avoid them.
0: Yeah, that's interesting um do you i'm like i love your advice about being present how to avoid or how to stay connected to some of these things is presence do you have any methods for staying present do you meditate at all or anything like that
2: um not really i mean spending time outdoors is my biggest um meditation and it really allows me to be present. Um, this experience uh, with COVID and being trapped in the hospital um, is made me realize it's breath. Okay. That's why COVID is so insidious. It's just, you can't breathe. And so I'm realizing that there's something about breathing that can let you slow everything down and force you to be present. Mm. Um, you know, you take it for granted that you breathe, you take it for granted that you swallow, you know, I had to relearn how to do those things. And it's crazy that, you know, I thought I knew how to breathe, but I did not I wasn't breathing properly and I wasn't doing it with a proper intention. And now, you know, I, I do. And so I think, you know, there's probably all kinds of different breath exercises that can uh, help you control yourself. Uh, to be present, to be less fearful, to make yourself feel more powerful. And it's through breath.
0: Okay. That um, aligns with... Lots of that ancient wisdom from religion, yoga. Everybody talks about the power of breath.
2: Yeah. And, you know, you definitely notice it when you, you lose it.
0: Yeah, totally. Um, what about, I'm curious, what kind of water you drink now after having those insights? Like, yeah. do you buy special water? Do you treat it a certain way?
2: Um, I try to. Uh, I tried to build some things that would infuse my water, but it's really difficult. Like the, you know, there are some pretty expensive machines out there that, that do it. There's, there's something to do with the, the vortice too that allows it to all blend together. Um, okay. That's why the eddies and rivers and things are so good. Um, yeah, I mean, all our water's messed up. I mean we've got to totally revamp how we treat water um because the the other downfall is is since it does lock in in its lattice structure it seems like it keeps all the contaminants too so okay. like when you recycle water you know you're not really recycling the information out of it and so it has to go through that natural process of evaporation and back into the clouds and down again. Um, so I don't drink any, anything special. I, I've tried to, you know, do some things on my own and source some machines. All the machines are really expensive
0: and I'm not sure if they work or not, but. Um, well, what you know, was that? What was that company doing exactly to their water?
2: They had a, uh, a system where they filtered it mainly for big agriculture. It wasn't really for people to drink. Okay. And, um, and they would take those minerals and, uh, introduce it to the water and, you
0: know, so they're adding, adding minerals as opposed to energy, let's say. Well, then from my understanding, the
2: minerals don't even have to touch it. It just can go buy it into its electromagnetic field. So, you know, they, the results seemed very promising that they were having great results with it. Um, I, I, they didn't let me really look at how the machine worked. Um, it was more the outcome of what they were trying to uh, articulate to people of how it worked it was my task because it sounds so okay. crazy so I'd created this painting of all the geometries of water and how it came down from the clouds and um, that sort of thing. Okay. And creating these clusters of molecules which really represent the mineral in water. So then that plant would recognize that and be able to use it. But yeah, I, I like spring water. There's a place in Sedona that I get water from when I'm there. I think Carlsbad has a spring Uh, spring water is
0: good you know so okay good um if you have the time this is kind of not related to a lot of what we talked about but I'm just curious Uh, my first introduction to you was through lost surfboards probably in the mid-90s I'm just curious to hear that story of how you connected with them and how that relationship developed and all that
2: yeah um well, I was a production surfboard painter in South Carolina. Uh, painting boards, for and then,
0: huh? Who are you working for in South Carolina at the time?
2: Uh, uh, Kelly Richards.
0: Oh no way! Cam Richards' dad. Yep. Insane. Did he have? Was it Village Surf
2: Shop back then? Yeah,
0: Perfection Surfboards.
2: Amazing, dude. So I was, you know, you know, I wanted to be a pro surfer like everybody else, and. I was like graduated in 1989 and that's right when the surf industry took a dive. So there was, I think all the tours were stopped and there was a bunch of companies went out of business. And so plan B was just do art. And so I was painting surfboards production and I was kind
0: of, was it all, was it airbrush back then?
2: Yeah. Mainly airbrush. I I had to paint pens. Um, I was painting some boards with paint pens and using them for pin lines. Gotcha. And then from there, I got the opportunity to go to Hawaii. So I went to Hawaii first and um, painted boards on in Haleva at Pro Glass. And, you know, I went from nowhere, South Carolina to painting boards for Al Merrick, Rusty, Mike Diffender for you name it, I all the best people. And I was painting boards for Tommy Carroll, Tom Curran. Um, You know, some of the best surfers and shapers in the world. And so that was great. I was living there, surfing pipeline and, you know, living the dream, really. And um, a few years later, uh, I had an accident pipeline where I hit the reef really bad and I couldn't work. And so I... uh, had to uh, do something. And once I healed up, it was summertime and there was no work in Hawaii. So a friend of mine, uh, Rob said, I should come to California and work here. And um, that sounded like a good idea. He said I could stay in his garage until I found a place. and um, So I came over, immediately got a job at uh, Stewart. Stewart surfboards was like the biggest thing going and um I got a job with him doing 10 a day minimum. So it was the first time in my life I was actually making a lot of money, uh, which was great. Um in Hawaii, you know, you might have three, you might have 10. Um, and then you had to figure out chase everybody down for money. That's Stuart yeah, yeah. and I painted my 10 boards and then did customs after that, and I got a check every week, like clockwork. I mean, I was in heaven. Wow. And um, I had uh, sent some uh, drawings to Rip Curl uh, to try to do some t-shirt designs. And they didn't really like them, but they the guy Lawrence. They gave him to, uh, ended up giving them to the Matt at Lost. He was starting out in the old uh, Herbie Fletcher building. And Matt was painting boards with a pasta pens like I was so like all my own boards were Posca painted and I painted a bunch like a Pipeline and stuff for my friends, but uh, none of the companies would let me do it. And so I was dr- riding my bike to work and uh, I figured it out by, and he was painting some cool boards and um, I kind of came in there and said, I painted boards and he was like, yeah, whatever. And, You know, our our personalities hit it off right off the bat. Like he's kind of a funny personality and, you know, kind of rough and tumble. And I'm kind of, you know, from the South and like, I can take, not be discouraged. And so Matt's giving me grief. And I said, you know what I can paint boards better than you can. And I painted, he was like, no way, man, you're dreaming. I painted a dragon. He thought he's like, oh well, it's all right. And it was just a cool day because you know, we became friends that day. And you know, neither one of us had a lot. Neither one of us owned cars. I kind of felt like we were the two guys that nobody wanted, you know. <laughs> and uh it just so happened that he was going to Japan. He he would uh make most of his money going to Japan. And um, So he was going to go over there and shape and do some boards and his girlfriend, Lindsay painted boards too. She was pretty good. Uh, she did all these like cool mushrooms and things, but between the two of them, they, they took them too long. They weren't making any money because it took them so long to paint something. What I brought to it was, uh, volume. I could paint really fast. So when he left, he had made a bunch of boards and, um, He just hired a sales manager, uh, this guy Rick Hazard. And so he left Rick and I in charge of all these boards. And he said, okay, I will let you paint these boards because we need to get them painted while I'm gone. And it was a lot of boards. And I said, great, you know I'll stop by here after Stuart. And so what would happen is uh, I would get there late in the afternoon, usually around five. Rick would be leaving and then I would stay there all night because I didn't have any friends um, and paint boards and li- listen to music. And it was just fun, you know? So I was painting all this crazy stuff on there and, you know, Rick had his contacts on the East coast and was like selling them and the guy was boxing them up and shipping them. And and it was great, you know, and I'm painting like crazy stuff on them. And uh, Matt calls like two weeks into it, like, on the phone from japan because back then you know there's no cell phone so it's not like he was calling every day and uh he's like how's it going and rick's like it's great you know i'm selling these boards i'm shipping them out and drew's painting like these gnarly chicks and all this stuff and matt's like what and matt kind of yelled at me like what are you doing you're gonna ruin my business painting all this crazy stuff and rick's like no they love it and um So when he got back, it was on. Next thing you know, him and I were traveling around the world. We traveled for a good five or six years together, you know, painting boards and surfing. And uh, the clothing company started. We was designing all that stuff. And, you know, we did that for a long time. But at some point, what year did did you meet? I'm sorry. Ninety six. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. And, um, you know, I just brought volume into it. And I can come in and do 10, 15 boards a day. Yeah. Not blank. And every one of them would be different.
0: Do you still work together?
2: Yeah. So Matt and I, uh, we do like special projects. Um, I'll paint some boards for some of the pros, you know, Mason Ho or, um, Ian Crane or Griffin or somebody. Um and I'll do some custom things. During COVID, I did a lot of boards um, out of necessity, really. Um, yeah, it, things were looking pretty lean, but we do
0: uh just just things here and there. Um as it relates to your recovery, are you painting again or where are you at in that process?
2: Not yet um, my hand's still a little numb my these two fingers you see it they don't move right um, I can't I probably c- could paint but I haven't started yet I have a couple more surgeries because of uh, the kidney stones oh, and, okay um, that's giving me a lot of pain and problems so if you see me whinging that's because I'm got pain in my side um, okay the um, I'm supposed to have that on wednesday so i'm hoping oh, after wow. that i'll feel a lot better and i'll be able to sit for a long period of time and paint but I, you know i have some clients i've been waiting a long time <clears throat> which you know i'm really happy about because you know they could have canceled those orders and um they allowed me to um, heal and so that's really nice of them like four do you feel
0: things. Do you feel pressure to s- expedite your recovery
2: um yeah because i mean i want to i want to get back to work i want to you know i got things to do um i'm so weak though like i'm i'm like ridiculously weak i'm still only 140 pounds which you know that's nothing for me and yeah you know, I got some back problems, you know, my, you know, body was taken to zero. So it, it, it's one that it crunched me and pull me forward. And I've got to constantly try to arch my back backwards because my muscles are pulling me forward. Um, so i got a lot of work to do on all my muscles and, um, it's very humbling. You know, I've never been weak in my life. Excuse me. And all of a sudden now I'm like weak it makes me feel bad for anybody that lives life weak.
0: Yeah. Um, or, or who has, um, like chronic injury, you know, back yeah. pain or whatever it is. It's gotta be a nightmare. Um, so does your day consist of currently? Um, I, I do everything
2: by myself. So I'd make my breakfast and, you know, I, I usually have physical therapy, um, every other day. And, uh, that's a lot of walking, a lot of up and down, uh, lifting weights over my head, things like that. Um,
0: things like that, uh, signing a lot of things
2: and um, try to take a nap. I uh, get really tired. Yeah. So, you know, I just in the last week, I've been doing a lot of time off oxygen. I was on uh, oxygen before that. So now I've done up to six hours off oxygen. So I'm okay. really trying to do that. And I feel like I'll probably be totally off oxygen within a few weeks. Okay. And, um, that's a huge milestone because, you know, was in February they were telling me that I was never going to get off oxygen. That I was never going to get off the ventilator that I would have to be institutionalized. And, um, that was scary. I was like, yeah. Yeah, I don't your mind. I'm not, no way I'm staying on this ventilator. And, um, And so the ventilator breathes for you. And I was on the ventilator for 70 days. And they said that, you know, being on it that long, normally people can't get off of it. Because your lungs and diaphragm are so atrophied that they can't do it for themselves anymore. So I had to fight that thing. I had to breathe without it for three days straight, 72 hours, to get off of it. And so that was another miracle thing that they said that they hadn't seen anybody do go 70 days and then 72 hours off, get to remove it. Right. And, uh, you know, I had some really good people, um, uh, respiratory people that, you know, egged me on and it was hard, man. It was like, I was afraid to go to sleep at night because I thought I might die in my sleep. And you know, I had nurses hold my hand all night and watch over me. And, you know, I can't thank them enough. I can't thank all these people enough. You know, not all of them were like that, but I had certain ones that just, they were rooting for me. And, um, you know, the, even the, the last hospital I was in, you know, the as I'm being discharged, and this is the place I learned to walk again. Uh, the lady in charge, who was a doctor, was having me fill out the papers. And she was getting all cry, like weepy-eyed and crying. And she says, I wanted you to know that I voted against you being sent here because I didn't think that you were going to make it and be a candidate that could walk again. Wow. And... She just said that, you know, she'd never seen anybody go through this program and, and do it like I did it, um, coming from where I came from. And she, she said, I'm just thankful I was outvoted. And so that was another like miracle thing. Uh, and learning to walk again was the hardest thing I ever, ever had to do, um, it's just crazy when your body doesn't work. Right. And Especially being a guy like me that's used to doing everything. And, you know, I've been strong my whole life. Um, you know, I never even thought about it. Just took it for granted that, you know, I can lift a giant trash can over my head over the cars and go and do everything. You know, there's nothing I couldn't do. Now I took my wife out to a restaurant for her birthday and I couldn't open the door of the restaurant because <laughs> I was so weak. I was like, Argh! and she wow. had to open it and I'm just like, Oh man. <laughs> so it's going full circle.
0: Well, I'll tell you what it your story has done for me or kind of reminded me of is like, I, I've never been weak either. And I've never actually dealt with sickness either. And from my perspective, I'm not very, sympathetic to people who are going through things. And um, your story is a good reminder that I need to be more sympathetic. You know, When people ask for help or ask for send prayers or thoughts or whatever, I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, I'll do that. But I don't really put that much thought and energy into it. And then when you see the effects of it, and I've had a couple instances in my life, I had grandparents who had cancer and passed away from it. And so those are kind of reminders of what it's like to, for somebody to go through suffering. But yours is a lot more relatable because you're young, because you're strong, and because you did everything right, essentially, to mitigate against this. So to hear the process of dealing with it really resonates and uh, makes me want to be more like those nurses who are there for you, you know?
2: Yeah, and, you know, we had a lot of people like, do things like cook dinner for us and fix things at the house. You know, this one guy, he uh, built a ramp at my house, you know, and I had painted a surfboard for a son and he's like, well, I'm going to build a ramp because it meant so much to me that, you know, you, you were nice to my son. Um, so, I mean, it's almost like you got to live your life like a life well lived in a way that it's all going to come back to you. And that's what really felt good to me is i had gotten enough positive points by living my life in a, in such a way that people wanted to pray for me. Um, I think that's an important lesson for people. Like you can't be a jerk your whole life and expect everybody to pray for you when you're, you need it, you know? So yeah. you, you got to live it. You got to, You know, like I'll be painting somewhere and inevitably there's somebody that has 8 million questions for you and is soaking up all the energy and, you know, I always take the time to sit with that person and give them all the information that I can and it's just my nature. But, you know, I got to think all the times that I've done that or the times I've painted one more surfboard for somebody like I'll go down to Mexico and I'll paint surfboards in Puerto and uh you know this goes back all the way when I was in my 20s and I just wanted to make their boards look better because they always had like broken boards and crappy looking boards and so I'd pick one day and paint boards for free and it got known that when I would go down there that paint boards on one day so everybody'd be waiting and it came time where I was painting boards for the kids of kids. I painted for years earlier. Wow. And that goodwill, um, comes back. Yeah. And it comes back in lots of ways. One great way was in the lineup. I'd be paddling for a wave and some, somebody would be like hassling me and all the Mexican guys would be like, Hey, you don't mess with uncle Drew. They got me wrong. So, you know, it, it, it's important to, to live in such a way that you have, you know, done for others. And, and that's where it comes in. And the hard part for me was accepting because I'd never really accepted from others. Right. And that was a lesson Maria and I had to learn. So, you know, we really didn't ask for anything. You know, we had people donate money to us, you know, cause I hadn't been working. Um, and, you know, the being in the hospital for four and a half months is uh, pretty uh, mind boggling financially. Yeah. Um, but we never asked for anything other than prayers and people did all kinds of wonderful things for us. Um, almost, it made me feel guilty of like wow you know like it's too much but people wanted to do it and it was really hard for us to accept it Uh, just because I'm not used to that I'm used to being on the other side of that and you know some of these people did it anonymously and you know and it's going to help us um, not have to stress. I mean, if I was losing my business on top of all this, it'd be awful. Oh. Um, and then, if I was going into more debt due to these doctor bills, it would be, you know, terrible. But the the universe has a weird way of, way of saving us, and um, it de- definitely came through for us. I mean, in all different kinds of ways, um, and it must mean that I'm not here, meant to be here, and, and do something. And um, so I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing and and what I've always done, because I I think that's it.
0: Um, yeah, I can't wait to see what you're going to do. I really feel like you'll come back stronger than ever. I mean, yeah, you're. I would imagine it's going to alter your perspective on every piece of food you put into your body, everything in terms of health and wellness and thoughts that you put into your body and all of that, the output will be the result, you know?
2: Yeah. And, and the arts is going to be affected in ways I don't know yet. I mean, I'm still processing so much of it and I'm trying to keep a good face on it. Uh, Yeah. I mean, I think I have a bit of PTSD um, due to the, course. the gnarliness of it. It was, I can't stress enough how how bad it actually was as far as on a personal level of, of suffering. Um, it, it, I mean, it was just absolutely awful. And I I don't even know how I survived that part of it. just it was like being a prisoner of war or something and being tortured and i hope nobody else to go through what i did it's just cruel and i survived it somehow and i try not to think about it i mean i can talk about it now and 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 laugh and joke about it and uh talk about it matter of factly but you know, when I first got home, I, I couldn't talk about it because it would just make you cry. Sure. And that's another thing. I'm not a person that cries. And like, good God. I mean, there was moments where you know, you just be bawling because you're, you're just in agony. And you just want it to stop and it wouldn't. And you feel like the whole universe is trying to stamp you out like a dirty cigarette and you got to keep fighting and yeah. fight for every breath. That's where I learned the real breath lessons is, you know, fighting for that breath. Sometimes I'd stay up all night fighting for my breath for days at a time. And, um, you know, that takes from some serious, uh, concentration and strong will. So, you know, you don't know if you have that unless you, you've lived it. So, I mean, it goes back to the first question of, you know, that's, that's really it. You need to live your life with intention and, and, you know, create a person that's, that's ready for adversity. Um, So when it does hit that you, you can sustain it, sustain your life and, Um, Because I I definitely attribute that to the reason I survived. Otherwise, I could have, you could have just given up and you'd be done.
0: Right. Well, this has been an inspirational conversation, and I think that um, you sharing all of this will serve a lot of people. Good. You know, that's
2: all I want. You know, I I didn't really sugarcoat anything. I just, it is what it is. Uh, you know, thanks for giving me a platform to, to do it. And, you know, I plan on probably, maybe, you know, writing or, you know, doing some talks about it. Yeah. Due to the fact that, you know, it it, it just the topic itself is bigger than being sick. It, it has a lot of uh, usefulness of ways to live. And so I like to package it as, you know, a way to live, not necessarily a way to survive. Um, and it just so happens that COVID is the thing that, that I was dealing with, but it could have just as easily been a car accident or something like that. Could have been anything. Um, yeah. I think COVID is
0: the thing that's happening right now. You did a good job in our communication about, uh, yeah, packaging it as a way to live as opposed to a way to survive everything. I felt these are like life lessons that we should have been living all along. And unfortunately, sometimes we need a really drastic reminder. Um, but they definitely, I think you've done a great job communicating the life lessons part. So, but you also, it's a delicate thing. Processing is a delicate thing where you want to process before you really start telling the story because otherwise it just becomes the story that you're telling become it's a different version, you know? So like fully process it, fully absorb it fully kind of try to understand its meaning for you before you start trying to retell it. Yeah. Cause it's, it's not over. Right. I and can tell that. Yeah. You know, like my
2: feet or feel, you know, like when your feet are cold surfing, Like in ice cold water and you can't feel them anymore. That's the way my feet feel all the time. And they say that'll go away, but you learn it, you imagine trying to learn to walk again on ice cubes. It's crazy. Um, But my hope is that you know, I'm gonna get to that magic weight. I'm gonna be build my muscles back up and you know, I'll be breathing deep and I'll look great. And then I'll tell the story and, you know, who knows what other insights I'll have at that time, but you know, I, I'm definitely not done processing it um, yeah. because it's there again, it's too much to process. It's, you know, it's, it's a sad, it's a sad story. Um, it's um, you know, you know, I have my side of it. But then you have my wife's side of it. I mean, that, that poor thing had to deal with so much. Yeah. That it breaks my heart. My son had to deal with it. My 20 year old son who, by the way, was like amazing. I mean, he would spend eight hours a day with me, moving my legs for me. And they would, couldn't move so that they would not lock up. Uh, he had to grow up real quick. Sure. And um, so there's all those things, too. So we all grew as a family. Um, the friends that came to see me when I was in bad shape, they're forever changed. I couldn't even talk. And having one of your friends cry on the side of your bed is is hard to watch. And I really couldn't say anything to him. I tried to write him a message, but uh, that was hard. But, so we'll have to do another talk when i get all better
0: well i was going to say i'll be tracking all of it of course i'm anxious to see you surf again i'm anxious to see the art that comes out of this and um i'll direct people in post-production A little outro i'll direct everybody to your website and social media but is there anywhere else that you want people to know about
2: um no that's that's probably perfect right there okay cool and um yeah thank you where
0: where where do you live uh just near huntington beach it's not not far
2: yeah not too far we're down in san clemente so uh the gallery's open thursday friday saturday and sunday you're down here perfect
0: will do thank you so much drew i appreciate the time
2: all right man i'll see you later
0: okay talk to you soon
1: I've always been a bit of a fighter From now on
0: There you are. Um, completely unedited, by the way. I, um, I often edit these conversations uh, for clarity and to keep certain things concise, but I thought um, Drew's musings, insights, just the telling of his experience was worth keeping intact. So um, I hope that you got something out of that. It's a lot to absorb. I have a feeling it's one that I'll go back to and listen to in the future. So anyways, thank you Drew. I know this was no easy task to revisit some of this stuff, but um I think it serves a great purpose. So thank you so much Drew. Drewbrophyart.com is his website and you can find him on of course social media. I'll link to all of that stuff on surfsplendorpodcast.com as well as images of his work. And, of course, um, those early lost videos where young influential surfers of kind of my generation when I was first getting involved in surfing uh, were riding his boards. I'll post all that footage on surfsplendorpodcast.com. Of course, we're giving away a Channel Islands free scrubber on June 1st to one of our lucky uh, supporters of our work. So as long as you get your support in before the end of May, I guess it would be May 31st at midnight California time, uh, you will be included in that giveaway. So you can navigate over to support the show on our website. It's $5 a month. It is one building block of our business. It keeps us going. It allows us to continue to archive surf culture weekly. So thank you for doing that. And also, thank you to our sponsors today, realwatersports.com and, of course, waterwaystravel.com and linkedin.com slash surf. I hope that you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. Um, it goes beyond joy, actually. It's just a total honor to be able to take a day and engage like this with somebody like Drew. So, um, really moved by it and appreciate Drew, appreciate you listeners for giving me the opportunity to continue to do this work. So thank you. My name is David Scales for Surf Splendor. I'll be back here next week with an all-new episode. I hope to catch you guys then. And until then, the best advice that I can give and share each week is just to remind you to get back into the ocean, uh, share some waves, and of course, shred on. And don't forget to post your job for free at LinkedIn.com/surf. That's LinkedIn.com/surf to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Ah, hmm,
1: the first taste of rare bourbon—you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy.